So we're out here in the beautiful Rathcrohan Visitor Centre and we're all here having coffee and we're talking about in particular the landscape and the absolute beautiful um, area of Tulsa and the connection with the Tombaculia. But I'm going to hand you over to Susie now and Susie's going to tell us, um, I suppose, inquire a question to Daniel about Rathcrohan in particular when it comes to the features of the landscape. So, welcome Daniel to the show. Um, we are talking about the Ton and uh, its relationship to archaeology and Irish landscape. Mm-hmm. And this is where Queen Maeve's quest for the legendary brown bull begins. So, can you tell us a bit about the archaeological features that are associated with the Ton? So, I suppose, yeah, where we are at Rathcrohan, it's it's a very dense landscape filled with uh, a multitude of sites that uh, we don't really have elsewhere in the country. So when, it, when it's been written up, when the town has been written up in the 12th century, uh, you know that actually the scribes even have this level of detail ascribed to the Midrash Common area. They're very familiar with it. So everything from Maeve's Palace, which is Rathcrohan Mound, so it's, it's regarded in the mythology and in the literature as the, the central focal point from a residential and an elite settlement point of view. Uh, you've got the Muklas suggested to be mentioned, which are these huge linear earthworks that are located in the southern part of the landscape that are created by the rootings of a giant wild boar. But as a secondary use, if you, if you take it as such, it's said that the armies of Maeve, as they depart from, from Rathcrohan, go via that route. Um, you also have the cave, uh, so U of Kruokan, we know today is Owen Nagat, and Owen Nagat is an, an access point to the Irish otherworld. But in, in the beginnings of the Thorn, Queen Maeve actually she seeks out her prophetess, Fidelm, um, who resides at the cave, and Fidelm is the one that's going to provide her with, I suppose, the portents of success or failure as part of the, um, the, the, the quest for that brown bull. So even in just the space of, you know, no more than probably two kilometres, you've got three enormous sites, both physically and, and in the literature, the mythology, um, that really loom large. So despite the fact that I suppose when I started out here nearly 10 years ago now, you know, the idea of having archaeology and mythology sitting alongside each other, understandable alongside each other, uh, wasn't, I suppose, immediately there. And I wouldn't be the, the quickest to say as much. It very soon came apparent that the only way really that you can understand Rathcrohan is through embracing those two stories of the mythology and the archaeology in unison. And that's where the real the value comes out of it in terms of how we try and inspect this place and try and make it, I suppose, very valuable for understanding what society was like and, and communities and uh, why they felt this place was so important. So that's amazing because one of the things we've really been drilling into is just how much mythology informs a lot of uh, archaeological investigation. So can you tell us a little bit, um, say, in particular, uh, like who, who, who has done most of the research here and what type of research have they done? So, I mean, the research agenda at Rathcrohan only really appears from the 1980s onwards. At that point in time, you've got uh, University College Dublin and you've got NUI Galway, what is now the University of Galway, um, both starting to engage in different research efforts out here. But by the mid-1990s, it's the University of Galway and the Department of Archaeology that really sought to try and... uh, make a great understanding of what was out here. So in the process of what they referred to at the time as the Archaeogeophysical Imaging Project, which is a mouthful in itself, um, it was a four-year project whereby um, the department 
of archaeology in the university, but also Earth and Ocean Sciences came together uh, to trial a whole series of innovative, uh, non-invasive um, archaeological survey approaches, which is the first time that a large-scale uh, remote sensing project was ever undertaken in an archaeological landscape in Ireland, and they chose Rathcrohan for that purpose. So they inspected 13 monuments between the Rathcrohan landscape and the, the, the nearby, uh, nearby, certainly here to Tulsk as well, and the Cairns or Ard Queen Ridge as well, just to our south here. And basically they, they use this suite of different methods in order to try and, uh, I suppose better understand what was out here without actually breaking ground. So a whole series of scientific methods were applied that when you put them together, you can interpret, I suppose, something of what the character is, what lies beneath the ground. Um, so the most detailed in terms of the surveys um, would have been Rathcrohan Mound itself, which is obviously, as we know, the focal point of the entire landscape. That's amazing. So just for people that don't understand what geophysical survey is, would you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so in, in layman terms, you could describe it re really as nearly like an X-ray or an MRI scan of the land. So uh, some of these methods uh, would go down relatively superficially, so they could go down less than half a metre in some of their, um, uh, I suppose, data collecting depths. And in other respects, they go down several metres. And they're basically just engaging in certain things, such as um, measuring the magnetic field uh, through to electrical resistance, which, which kind of measures the, effectively the soil moisture of a... Of a, of a a turf soil and and what obstacles might be in the path of um what is the natural subsoil so you could be talking about buried features such as uh, stone walls or dumps of stone uh, air pockets uh, natural moraines and so on and basically picking these suite of different technologies and uh, understanding them as a collective that's how we can kind of get a sense of what was beneath the surface basically in some cases as i say less than half a metre down, but they give us basically the opportunity for a virtual excavation. Thanks so much for that. Um, yeah, because it's really important that, uh, especially you mentioned earlier, non-invasive techniques, um, and that would come under the category of landscape archaeology. Uh, so it's really important because there has been, has there been excavation here? Because it's a very different thing to a non-invasive study of the landscape. So as of yet, there's only ever been one excavation at Rathcrohan. Uh, that was in 1981 uh, at a monument known as Dahi's Mound and Dahi's Stone. Uh, so that was undertaken by Professor John Waddell, who was the, the head of the Department of Archaeology at the time in, in Galway. And I suppose that is the, the most invasive act that's actually taken place out on a landscape that's populated by 240 archaeological sites. So that means that we're... We're kind of incredibly light touch in how we understand uh, the archaeology out here. So when you're dealing with it from a visitor point of view, the immediate thing when you say that, you know, archaeology is involved, well, what did you find? What's been dug? And you have to kind of reframe that matter for them because, you know, we're looking at a monument, say, in this case of a ring fort or a barrow. It could be there 1,500 years. could be there 2,500 years. The essence of the matter is that survived to us in fitting a cord with very little interaction with it apart from the grazing of livestock and our own light touches as well. So... Uh, if we have to choose archaeology for excavation to the future, we already have all this groundwork, all this foundational material that allows us basically nearly like a, a keyhole surgery to apply a technique, uh, an invasive technique in the case of our uh, excavation to a site without actually having to destroy the monument in, in total in order to try and achieve some better understanding of what it's about. And just in terms of that, um, there is as much information gathered when we... Uh, approach a landscape from that that is a lot less invasive? Certainly that. I mean, what we're trying to do is we're trying to be innovative. We're trying to see that, you know, we're future-proofing the, the, the method so that it's uh, going to survive to the next generation. You know, the, 
the archaeology in essence is a resource if we look at it from that point of view and if we sustainably manage it and mind it and, and bring it to the next generation in better form than it currently is then it means that you know we're doing something right by it because at the end of the day some of these places are burial places these are places of very high important um, we wouldn't necessarily have the same level of uh, intrigue over a modern graveyard uh, we would have a lot more sacred nature to it and, and a place of uh, spiritual importance to it so we should really kind of couch any investigations that an example such as a burial mound that is maybe 2000 years old and, and can conceive of it in a similar fashion because that is the way in which we can ensure that uh, I suppose our ancestors are taken care of in the same sense as the future generations will value it as well so excavation yeah that's kind of the last resort in a, in a place like Rathcrohan because the methodologies if we're innovative can tell us up to maybe 80% of what we need to know about a site um, and again if it's a case that you have to then engage with excavation it's done in an incredibly targeted um, uh, very light touch approach um, for the future preservation of the site as well Yeah I like that light touch approach and it, it, it really is this beautiful um, cultural sensitivity which is important, and not just for the here and now, but for the past as well. Um, you were talking about some of the monuments earlier. Would you perhaps, let's, let's visit the mucklers. Would you describe the mucklers to the listeners and, and maybe talk about what they're, they're used as and described as in the tawn and what we actually think they are? So the, so the mucklers are a very unusual set of features. So these are what we refer to, I suppose, archaeologically speaking, as linear earthworks, but that doesn't really do them much justice, I suppose. So they're, they're a double set of banks, um, so we've got a, a smaller set of banks and these are about 100 metres long. The maximum height at the centre of these banks is about uh, 3 metres tall. And then the southern mucklas, the longer of the set, is uh, 275 metres of full length and the banks themselves are a little bit more superficial. They're about a metre and a half at maximum t- height in the present sense. So this collection of, of, of sites, they, they're described in the literature as having been created by the rootings of a giant wild boar that emerged out of the cave of Kruokin or the cave of Onagoth and having dug its tusks into the ground to create the features and certainly from the air and, and certainly in the minds of our ancestors maybe the generations that had forgotten who had built them it certainly gives off that impression um, from, from their use in the town it's inferred as I said that Maeve's armies uh, depart from Rathcrohan via this route going effectively southwest from Rathcrohan Mound before charting a route going directly east across the island. So the mucklers are used from that point of view as nearly a procession way or a parade route out of the, the immediate environment. And certainly given the, the different monuments that are in its near vicinity, so down towards southwest immediately you've got a site known as Cashel Monanen, which is in all intents and purposes a very degraded example of an elite residence of quite possibly late Iron Age date as well as being early medieval dates. So you're talking about roughly, you know, 2,000, maybe 1,500 years old. And the fact that that major, what's likely to be a major hub of high status um, settlement, but also trade, uh, constituent communities that would have, uh, I suppose, hubs or satellited themselves around that focal point um, is, is sitting alongside the Muklas immediately to its northeast. And then going up through the Muklas, if you conceive of them as nearly a set of arrows, pointing up to the northeast, you're coming up towards this great ritual site of the cave at Uv Kruken or Owen Nagath, and even further to the north, then you've got Rathcrohan Mound itself. And if we piece Rathcrohan together as not just being this elite residence of Queen Maeve, this great mythical queen, this goddess in effect, this uh, sovereignty figure of our, of our ancient ancestors here, um, it is actually probably a temple, a place of worship to the, to the 
the land itself in, in that female guise. So the idea that the mucklers may be serving as some class of a procession route, a linking route, a, a right of approach, basically, from one group of sites that might be more residential in character up to the more sacred or spiritual or religious-bound sites is uh, very compelling. So would that be, in some ways, even similar so people can have a visual comparison to Aysbury and Stonehenge? Certainly so. I mean, we're basically guiding the landscape in order to create, uh, I suppose, uh, paths or, or routes through it um, that people can then follow. And you have to conceive of Rathcrohan in a very specific way. Uh, people that wouldn't be familiar with the area, wouldn't be familiar with the archaeology, might conceive that this was possibly a, you know, a late Iron Age or a late prehistoric um, city. And we need to kind of bring people away from that very quickly because this is not a great hub from a settlement or a population point of view that we would conceive of it. It's something different. It's, a, it's probably a place that um, generations of our ancestors, or our elite ancestors at least, are being sited on very prominent locations within the area. And this is going back into you know, the Bronze Age and possibly earlier. Um, prominent locations, this is probably a great elite cemetery. Um, as we get into the Iron Age, we're probably arguing that this suggestion is that Rathcrohan is also a great residential site for the, the top end of society, but that the larger part of the community would still navigate or gravitate towards that point, that hub of Rathcrohan, at particular points in the calendar year. So there's a waxing and waning in terms of its, uh, its uh, population numbers, so that the constituent parts of the community might be coming from as far afield as what is modern South was common, as, e as easily as going from northwest Mayo or down from places like Sligo in order to focus upon this place. You have to remember that Rathcrohan itself is sitting in the best grazing land, the most fertile land west of the River Shannon, which to our first communities, you know, that's... that's uh, a place of high importance because that's how you sustain yourself. So the fact that this archaeology, this enormous complex of archaeology at Rathcrohan is perched within this uh, fertile high ground is, is not by coincidence or by chance. So this huge community of people coming together are coming together at points in the year dictated by the agricultural calendar at the marks of the changing of the seasons. And they're coming out at full and bound up with all the stories and the mythology and all the literature. And every single site out of Rathcrohan um, certainly of the 60 national monuments and more besides have their own story to tell it might be in folklore, it might be in local information but equally so, it could also be in the mythology itself and in the literary, um, in the literary corpus that has survived down to the present day to us Yeah, that's quite fascinating especially when you think about the, the enormous sacredness in the landscape alongside this, this everyday function of raising cattle and the importance of that fertility and keeping that fertility alive so the other uh, monument I'd really like to talk about is is the cave um, so tell us about the cave and and it's especially the the ohm uh, marking inside the cave yeah so, so the cave is it's got its physical entity and it's also got all of this literature mythology that's bound up with it as well and in order to understand, I suppose, maybe what its uses are, were or maybe get some kind of gleans of insight into it, uh, we need to kind of navigate both, both sides, of course. So firstly, we've got this natural limestone cavern. It's about 37 metres long. At its deepest point in the basin of the cave, it's about seven metres below ground. It's not very large. It's not very substantial in terms of its, its width either. It's about three metres wide at maximum width. But in the early medieval period, and there's certainly research progressing at the moment that would say that even the first indications that we have of interactions or modifications to the site is in fact earlier than the early medieval period as well, and that's something that we would like to bring to the surface in due course. Um, 
our ancestors decided to attach a formal entrance onto it. So it's not just a natural site because we also have this 10 meter long limestone cavern um, entrance. It's a passageway that's been chiseled out of the bedrock to provide a more formal access down into the fissure itself. In archaeological terms, we'd refer to it oftentimes as a souterrain-like passageway. And these souterrains are usually found at large ring forts or church sites of the early medieval period and usually used for the most prosaic things, including the storage of food uh, and a colder temperature, meaning that food won't uh, uh, perspire or, or expire as quickly. We, we have them all in our homes today, I suppose, in the form of a fridge. But at the very, very entrance juncture itself into the, into the man-made section of the cave, we have these two ohm stones. Uh, so ohm writing is the earliest form of writing surviving in Ireland. It's a series of dashes and notches. It's based on the Latin alphabet. It's early medieval in date. It's 4th to 8th century, broadly speaking, AD. And what we see with these two ohm stones, well, certainly the one that's um, decipherable, it says the following. It says, Freak Maki Maeve. So we have this Freak figure, who is a great figure on the Thorn. He has his own cattle raiding story, in fact, which is Thornbow Freak also. He's a Connacht warrior who dies at the hand of Cú Cullen in the Thornbow Cullinia. And he's said to be buried at a site immediately to the south of Tulsk at a place called Cairn Freak or Cairn Free in English, which happens just so happens to be the inauguration venue for the O'Connor Kings of Connacht for about 500 years. So there's this continuity of importance, of significance, attached to this figure and attached to the land in its, in its own entity um, that stretches way back into the distant past and attached to this heroic warrior. So his name is, is basically petrified into the, into the wall of this cave. Uh, alongside him we've got Maki, Maki is son of, and then we have Maeve. And we would regard this as probably being the earliest reference that we have to the Queen Maeve that we've referred to in the Thorn but in reality, probably a sovereignty goddess, a goddess of the land. Um, so this is the earliest reference we have to Maeve in any literature. And the reason why we can say that it might be evidence of a sovereignty goddess well, is because the ohm stones that we have down in Corcoguina, down in the Dingle Peninsula in Kerry in particular, uh, they refer to a goddess figure known as Divinias. And uh, the Divinias ohm stones uh, are what actually give the peninsula down in Kerry its name, Corcoguina, effect effectively meaning the seed of Divinias so that the ohm stones down there are actually, the figures being represented in these ohm stones are actually attaching themselves back to the land itself. And in that localised area, that goddess of the land, Divinias or Gwina, we, rep we represent it here in Connacht with obviously our Maeve. And Maeve, even, even though it's only a solitary example in the cave fabric itself, is representative of all that's fertile, all that provides to us out in Midras Common, out in, out in the Easter Connacht. We also uh, find that the sovereignty goddess becomes important in the right of kingship. So my next question then would be the, the wrath itself, the, the palace. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And, and do we think that there were, was it more a ceremonial place or were there people living there? Let, let people know sort of what was going on there. Yeah, so, so the Mount of Rathcrohan, which is what gives the place its name really, is, is basically the focal point of the entire landscape. So our argument would be, okay, we, we, need to, we need to turn against the mythology in this respect because it's not a place of elite residence. The geophysical investigations conducted there explain to us that, okay, in some terms we can describe it as a, a very exaggerated form of what you would expect of a domestic architecture. So what do I mean with all of that? It basically means that um, you're looking at a, a very, very large roundhouse an extraordinarily large roundhouse. You're talking about something that's about 33 to 34 metres in diameter, something that's barely roofable. 
and certainly not something that you can keep, keep heated. So in terms of the magnetic susceptibility survey, for instance, uh, they uncovered no evidence of what we describe as a hearth fire. So domestic burning, industrial activity, um, anything that you would expect to see in a great residential site. So something is at play here that's slightly askew against the mythological stories, because mythological stories are telling us that this is Maeve and Alel's great residence. This is the location from which the thorn begins. This is the scene of the pillow talk. When we conceive of it in those terms, it probably disguises and it is demoting the status of this location. Now, we, we, can, we can reverse back out of it in some respects because if we can conceive of it as a super house, as a super round house in effect, an exaggerated form of domestic architecture, that's what's recognisable to the communities of the time. But it's probably more likely to be a temple, a place of worship, a place of sacredness, a place where you maybe are worshipping the goddess of the land. And in our part of the world, the goddess of the land around us here is Maeve. So if we, if we cast her or recast her back into the character of being a goddess of the land, a goddess of sovereignty, it is indeed still her dwelling, but it's not her dwelling as a, as a physical, uh, I suppose, secular queen. She's actually much more important than that. It's, it's actually what provides to us, allows us the opportunity to survive to the next generation. And taking that viewpoint into, into play and, and kind of brushing away some of the maybe the agendas or the motives of the, the scribes that are writing down the story in the 12th century that have to recast it in, in the light of Christian, the Christian religion, it means that we have a better understanding of what the mound actually may, may represent. It also tells us maybe that the rituals that might be taking place here, if you stand at the top of Rathcroha Mound, it's a local high point, it's a high point of the local topography, and the views that you can command from it on a good day are enormous. So on a very good day, you'll see Crow Patrick, which is 90 kilometres away to the west. You'll be able to see the Schlieve Blue Mountains in County Tipperary. You'll see Quilka Mountain in County Fermanagh. You'll see Schlieve and Eirin in the Quilkas. You'll see, from, from, you'll see the Brickleave Mountains. You may even see parts of the Sligo Mountains. But basically, as you stand at the top of that mound, you can basically take in Maeve's province. The mountain ranges that crown the, the edge of, of Connacht, if we talk about Maeve's province as being Connacht itself, they're one and the same. So the suggestion that there may have been rituals associated with kingship at the top of Rathcroha Mound, um, we have to leave it in the place at the present until we get written re- references to it at a place of n- not fully there. It's a little bit of a question mark. However, it has all of the trappings from an archaeological point of view and from a mythological point of view that would suggest that it was a place of inauguration or a place of the crowning of kings. And it all, all we need is that smoking gun, of that initial reference that we need to find, perhaps in a manuscript in, in northern Italy or some other location that we haven't yet discovered, that just gives us the smoking gun to suggest that in the early medieval period and slightly later, it continues in its use of, of being a place of inauguration. But that doesn't take away from all of that information that's, com- the, I suppose, the cross-section between the mythology and the archaeology um, and demonstrates that this place being an enormous place of importance. It's very interesting what you said about the, the view shed with what you can see. I know from my own research around the Turo Stone and its sighting, when you did a view shed there, you could actually see to Crowpatrick from there as well. And if you stood at the top of the hill, even though it was situated uh, below the peak, you could actually see all the way into Offaly from there on a clear day as well. So it's, and that's in, in East Galway. So it's, it's quite um, interesting how they were using sighting of other landscape features to add to the importance of a feature that they stood in. So um, 
John Waddell, who's very much involved in, in the research of Rath Crohan and mythology in general, he, he really states that it's impossible to ignore the mythic dimensions of places such as Rath Crohan. But he also says that though they held importance to the medieval mind, whether they had an older era is to be debated. So you've sort of gone into a little bit of that there. So do you think that there was possibly a secular queen associated somewhere with this landscape, not necessarily with and in Rathcrohan, but nearby, or that Maeve truly is this deity that has been given this sovereignty? I suppose the best way we can kind of look at trying to understand that in a better sense, we have to probably borrow from maybe continental examples and obviously historical examples that we would have of very highly important um, authoritative uh, female figures maybe as late even as the 15th and 16th centuries. So for my own research, I mean, we would look at uh, the O'Kelly's South of Common in East Galway, the Kingdom of Avina. And what we're talking about there is that the high status women of O'Kelly country are they're funding their own praise poetry. They're, they're patronising monasteries in their own right. So wealth and importance are a very important part of um, how they re- re- represent themselves to the, to the public world. So from a power point of view, certainly there's a possibility that uh, as you stretch back into, you know, into the medieval past and even into the Iron Age past, that there may have been examples of, of very important, powerful female um, figures, warriors, uh, rulers... It stands to reason. The only fortunate thing is we don't have the historic attestation for them as of yet. But the the reality is that you know all of these ceremonies, as well as everything else, this idea of representation of the female, um, both in landscape, it also sometimes needs to be copper fastened by a representation in human form. And we do see that in certain of the the Indo-European rituals surrounding kingship, whereby a woman dresses up in a goddess's garb in order to uh, be a central part of that ritual. That idea of the ceremony um, not being complete unless you have your goddess in human form as well. So there could be a commonality of that. And that could be represented by uh, a prophetess, by someone of very high import in the secular world of that time or in the ritual and and the sacred world as well. And indeed, if we stretch back into the thorn again, I mean, one of the first things we talked about was the fact that Fidelm, the prophetess, resides at the cave of Kruken. And she is the one that is, uh, as it was, delivering uh, divinations, uh, describing the future, uh, foreseeing, you know, challenges, obstacles, even if they are ignored. So that demonstrates, even in and of itself, that uh, that woman was incredibly important to that community at that point in time, in the sense that she was valued. Her her opinion, her, her, her skill, her experience were were central to the success or failure of Queen Maeve's exhibition in that case. That's actually quite fascinating. We, we may have to bring you on again and have another chat uh, because I say I, I, with my research around Turo, uh, the other thing was I did a comparison with Delphi and Greece and the Oracle of Delphi and the importance of that, that Oracle, that prophetess in the landscape. So we'll, we'll park that one for now. But what we'll get you to do is tell us a bit about uh, the facilities here, your opening hours over the summer, what's on offer. I might just step in across you there, Susie, as well. Just one thing that really struck out to me there as well is about that idea of that big landscape view that they could see by being on top of Rathcron. I know they were huge into, I suppose they would have worshipped the gods and they really believed in that, um, in, I suppose, the, the pagan gods and things like that. It was almost like they were trying to mimic um, the idea that in itself that they were an earth god, that by being able to see all around them they had that god's eye view kind of is do you think daniel that's kind of a 
I suppose, an, an aspect of maybe they wanted to bring that out in themselves. Well, certainly, I mean, when you can conceive of how, how very low down we are when we're standing at the top of Rathcroft Mount, we're only at about 150 metres above sea level, yet you can basically perceive the best part of Connacht in terms of its landmark mountains um, all around it in a ring, basically framing the territory that you're under, con- under your control, under your responsibility, and uh, that you derive power from. So certainly it's a case that even in that small vantage that affords that great duché, that great vantage, there's something incredibly powerful about that, basically that you're able to harness it in a cer- certain respects. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't be in any way um, short in, in terms of agreement on that it's, 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 it's really is a, it's a potent thing that perhaps we've forgotten about you know um, we, when we look at archaeology and I was only talking about this with a colleague recently is that when we look at our archaeology here at Rathcrohan or other places that are placed in high vantages you're looking at a landscape like where certain challenges present themselves okay it's one of the most fertile plains in, in, on the island and certainly in Connacht but moreover than that you're talking about a place that's difficult to get water up on the top of that hill so they're actually placing this huge plethora of archaeology in a place where it's difficult to, to water your stock or water yourselves. And uh, why? So why, why choose that vantage point over what is a, a basic human need? And um, that's something that, you know, you're, you're couching the various desires or needs in a certain way or maybe hierarching them as, as you so fit. Actually, that's very interesting. That was one of the questions I, I came up in my own research was why was this height nowhere near water? It was very, very interesting question. Kira? Yeah, just, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I think it goes back to as well power, I suppose. They wanted to show people that they, could, like, that they were the, the chosen one by the gods to, to rule, I think, as well. It, was, it really just kind of stood out to me exactly what you kind of said there um, about, about everything. I think it was absolutely fascinating, um, how, I suppose, their mindset and what they were willing, what lengths they were really willing to go to in order to, to prove that they were rightful rulerships. I mean, this is a select environment in some respects. I mean, perhaps, you know, the, the door is opened to the wider community at certain points in the year, but it's all very, we would exa- expect that it was all very carefully choreographed, that, you know, certain elements of society are allowed in certain locations within the landscape. And, uh, you know, where we have the ability to climb to the top of Rathcroham Mound and, and do it at our will in, in the modern sense, perhaps, you know, that was only the preserve of a very select few in times past, and uh, the ability to be the, the the ruler of all that you for you know perceive is is uh, yeah it, it bears thinking more about at least certainly definitely. So we'll just get you now, Daniel, to just uh, tell us about the the facilities here at Rathcrohan, your opening hours for the summer, and and any uh, activities or events you may have coming up. So. Well, we currently have, um, we're open 9.15 to 4.30 daily, and our cafe closes at 4, four o'clock. Um, the museum is open all day with that, so your last entry into the museum is also at 4.30. And uh, aside from that, then we offer, from the 1st of May until the end of August, we'll be offering two sides tours every day, Monday to Friday. Um, so they will be at 12 noon and at 2 p.m. And they're a two to two and a half hour tour that would bring you out onto the landscape. Um, you get the, the full gamut of the mythology and the archaeology. We encourage questions. And for those that are brave, 
uh, or foolhardy enough, we'll also bring them down towards the cave and into the cave if they feel if feel willing to do so. Um, so look, the centre's been running here for uh, nearly 25 years now, and uh, it's a community endeavour. Uh, all profits go back into the running of the the, the visitor centre and into our various different um, patrons. So it's a case that we we are embedded in in the area. One of the projects that we're engaging in at the moment, we recently received. Um, an approval for a uh, Waymart walking trail through the landscape, which is uh, totaling just shy of half a million in its uh, in its funding. So this outdoor recreation infrastructure scheme, we're currently in the process of project managing and trying to get that to completion in the next 18 months. So that'll that'll revolutionise how a visitor explores Rathcrohan. So from a trailhead at the car park of Rathcrohan itself, um, you'll be able to go on 13 kilometres of a walking route, visiting all these sites we talked about, some of which we don't currently visit or not accessible to the public at present. So they go in the form of the Mucklas and Cash Monanen, but also our Neolithic court tomb at Clahanagarp, through to um, our church site at Temple Moyle, Rathmore, Rathbeg, Rathadarv, all of these will be included in the, the broader walking trail as uh, time progresses. So we're very, we're very um, excited, incredibly excited. This is, this is a new way in which we approach archaeology out here. We also have our farming Rathcrohan EIP, our European Innovation Partnership Project, which is its final year of its current iteration, and we want to see that success uh, out and hopefully refunded in, into the future as well. And we have a couple of other irons in the fire as well. We have to re, um, republish our, our second edition of our Rathcrohan guidebook, which we hope to get on the shelves in the next couple of weeks. And uh, we have a couple of funding streams that we want to see success in uh, that maybe we might have to talk to you again about basically that's amazing thank you so much daniel thank you and i just have to say as well a note that the food and the coffee in the beautiful Anton cafe is absolutely gorgeous full of so many different options there people that are vegan people that are um vegetarian um it's just fantastic facility to have out here lovely staff beautiful environment lovely bright lovely window um there's beautiful big windows with loads of light coming in just a lovely atmosphere in general i have to say as well the artwork on the walls really kind of stood out to me as well the maps it's fantastic for people to come in here before maybe they go on a tour look at the maps really kind of get a sense in their mind the landscape of the area and how far it really reaches out and i think that's what the, the artwork has really done here at the center especially the beautiful muriel on the wall as well outside of queen Maeve. um so iconic so eye-catching um, it really kind of depicts all elements of me her personality and what she was really about and i suppose more importantly as well the power and that image that she wanted to really portray absolutely fabulous place guys you definitely have to check it out yeah most definitely and i thoroughly demolished my amazing amazing food so thanks so much for coming on today daniel and we'll, we're going to bring you on next week and we're going to do a little tour of uh the museum here Brilliant. yeah we're looking forward to having you Thanks so much. Thanks, guys.